Yeah. So with kids, that's why you download it. I don't know. I feel like, yeah, I feel like um, that's not a universal experience necessarily. I have, I know a young couple (coughs) who refuse to play children's music to their one-year-old. Oh. Yeah, which I think is great. Like I concur just because I personally absolutely think that children's like toddler music is just as bad as like heavy metal. I just, I can't do it. Like, yeah, I can't. Yeah, I don't listen to them anymore. Yeah. Because like, yeah, I basically, yeah, but it makes sense, right? I mean, why would, why, what's, what is the point of, um, what is like, well, like, what is the benefit of playing, say, the Wiggles music over like whatever you listen to? And you know these people I know. I guess they just have to find taste. something that's kids appropriate. Sometimes they're yeah, not, as long as it's, there's no... are not are not children are children appropriate. Except for, for example, that the comedy show that I with Aya. Oh yes, yes. We're diving right into our week of cultural consumption, guys. Yeah. This is Jesse. Hi, this is Helen. And we're Asian bitches down under. Um, flying into February, the second month of the year. And uh, what a crazy week. Yes, it has been a crazy week. A crazy has... week. Let's dive straight into it, Helen. Yeah, so my kids are back at school, which I found like after six weeks of holiday, I'm exhausted. But I'm also very joyful because I spent a really nice time with my daughter and par- partly with my son as well. We came home briefly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> as you can hear, that I still haven't got my boys back. But I would just start to listen to to a lot of radio programs that has like a brief segment about oh the back to school returning to school and we never had this kind of discussion when we were growing up or at least i don't hear our parents talking about it that oh you need to get your kids ready back to school you know you need to get them prepared especially for those ones who are starting school they're gonna feel anxious Mm. parents gonna feel anxious as well and i was just thinking because my kids are older now So I feel a bit more relaxed and they're more, they're, they're more independent, of course. Mm. But to me, I was just thinking it, it feels like it's more the anxiety coming out from the parents, you know, yeah. letting go of yeah. their kids back to school or begin, begin school. Mm. Um, yeah, just something very different. I think when we were growing up, when the school starts, our parents just said that, yep, yeah, off you go and bye. Mm. <laughs> they don't yeah. even say bye, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a different time, I guess. And also yeah. you're at a different phase in your life. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there are parents still out there. Um, and the since child. we're talking about yeah. Australia, let's just contextualise it. I'm sure there are a lot of parents out there who still think that, who, who still operate on those, on the way that our parents did in the sense that they just didn't think it was a big deal. You know, you yeah. ship your kids off to school you, uh, as long as you know that they were safe. I mean, what else is there to worry about? You know, our parents came from also a very different time and generation and their relationship to education system and what their children um, go through is just not something that they talked about, you know, um, or, or that they think it was anything that was worthy of, like, occupying any mental space for. That's right. They've got too much things, you know. Do you feel like as you get older as a parent, you mm-hmm. are more anxious or do you think you are about the same? I think it depends on situations. It depends on the context of what your kids are going to encounter. 
um like for example my youngest child she's going to a new school mm. it's not like kindy but she is traveling on the public transport from now on so i do feel a little bit anxious about that like i don't feel anxious about her social interactions with new friends because i know that she's quite bubbly she's quite open to make new friends compared to you know a couple of years back when she's still a bit more hesitant to make new friends mm. so i guess like you said different stage of life that there are different things to worry about but it's not something that i will blow up and you know being so anxious I, I think our parents were anxious i feel like our, my our mother was anxious yeah she is a yeah i think she was anxious about different things yeah like like teenage, definitely uh, dating i think boys. she was anxious about getting good grades for us like she was never oh, a tiger mum but yeah, i feel like um i remember during the time i'd say be- between the time our brother had his hsc and then my my hsc um i think my brother and i were we have a three year gap during that three four years where we went through senior high mm-hmm. i remember um she, my i remember our mum would be like okay i'll 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 relax once kevin's finished his hsc and then after kevin had finished his hsc it was then my other older sister the mm-hmm. sister between me and my yeah. brother and then she was like oh i'll relax once she's done it and then after her it's it was like me you know yeah. it's like i remember just like it was always like a constant sort of cycle of like looking forward to the next thing that she had to be anxious about oh, okay and because you know our parents grew up in the 50s 60s 70s in taiwan and you know they even now you know the mental kind of illness and conditions it's they don't have the length they don't they're not as open about it as we are here in the west mm-hmm. um i think that my our mother just kind of bottled bottled it up obviously in the way that you know she was taught to but um i i feel like i mean i sense through observing kind of parents and being more aware of parental kind of psyche now mm-hmm. that i I'm at an age where it's like a demographically specific experience where people are having kids and all that. Mm. I, I feel like um recently I've realized that um I don't know if like it's like a specifically daughter related thing, but mm. I've noticed that a lot of mothers are very anxious for their ch- daughters especially to be likable. You oh, know to okay. be well liked and and that's very much mm. I think aligned to what you had said. I don't know, you can disagree with me, but you before about Five minutes ago, you had said that you wanted you were anxious about your daughter having friends. Oh yeah, social, you know? social interaction. Yeah, which yeah. which I think is another way of saying you want your child to be liked, right? Mm. You know, like you want your child to have friends, meaning you want your child to be liked. Which, like, I just remember being at a wedding recently, and this is a dear friend of mine, mm-hmm. and uh, her mother. One of the compliments that the bride's mother made to my friend was that. Um, uh, she was really proud of her daughter for because she was like, oh, I think I, I'm not sure if she said this during the speech, but she was like, um, my daughter is very well liked by a lot of people, and like mm-hmm. that was one of the things that she heralded about her mm-hmm. daughter. That's and I was like, wow, that's so funny because like nobody ever mentions likability when it comes to men. You know, uh, often I mean I talk about this all the yeah. time, but I just find it, um, I just find it limitlessly fascinating that we still. Praise men and women for different things, and we still want men and women to to be to have the things. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's it's like desires are very gender specific, and so like 
I'm I'm thinking like why why is it so important for our children to be liked, especially when it comes to girls?、Mm, that's interesting. <clears throat> I think it, we always have that perception of girls needs to be together.、Um, like for me personally, I I want her to have friends, not necessary to be liked, but people who are liked minded like her,、mm. she can talk to. I mean, you can have friends that you don't like. You know, you can have friends that you disagree on things. But I, I have really this really simple <clears throat> theory for now at this moment for her to have someone that she can kind of rely on or to watch out for because they're traveling on public transport together.、Mm, they're、mm. in the same class, so I don't know if I want her to be liked, or I actually more more of a sense that I want her to feel comfortable with someone. That she feels safe to travel on the public transport. That's it. So、mm. I don't know if her friends actually liked her or she really liked those friends. But it seems like for now, they don't. As a you know, ten, eleven year old kids, they don't really consider that much. They just want to hang out with someone. And I do observe different interactions between boys and girls. The boys don't really hang around. You know, they don't huddle together. I mean, they go talk. talk to each other and they walk away and they and come. And they、back. do stuff, yeah. Yeah, and they, you know, like this is my observation. Yeah, at school and at the stations, well, like they know each other, but they don't. They're not as close as the girls are. That's what I'm observing. You mean physically close? Yeah, physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah as yeah. girls, the girls,、um, female students, they would just sit together or they would stand near and talk and talk. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely have observed this from like <laughs> almost ten years of teaching at different segregated schools. Segregated, as in like gender segregated schools.、Mm-hmm. Um, boys are always out in the playground, just kicking a ball, and girls sit in groups, like literally a circle. Like、okay. I did a couple of days casual teaching at Hornsby Girls High, which is the circuit、mm-hmm. school. Oh my goodness! Literally at recess and lunch, the girls would just sit in a circle. They were, like li- the entire <laughs> playground was just basically twenty groups of circles. <laughs> It was so funny. Yeah, little、yes. tribes. Exactly, little tribes. Yeah, it was fucking hilarious.、Um, but I, I wanted to. Yeah, just hearing you say this, maybe it's just basically an extension of wanting your kids to be loved, right? Yeah, possibly. Which、If、I think is just the most、you. natural thing. You、yeah. want you want your children to feel validated and seen, right?、Yes. That's why you、yeah. want them ultimately to have friends.、Mm-hmm. And I think I have never been one to be. You know when. You know when. You know there are always these people who have heaps of friends, and people gravitate towards them. They're like universally well loved. You know,、uh, you know every yeah, school, know, like the, every alpha, very popular yeah, person. Kind of, yeah. The pop- I, I have never been that type, and、um, I don't gravitate、I've, towards them. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> neither, neither. Um, I think growing up, I've always been a bit um envious, or I've always been a bit sorrowful. The fact that I wasn't so like. Kind of like universally well loved. I I,、mm-hmm. I feel like those people have inherently, like in my head, I'm thinking someone like Gio Tolentino must have been someone like that. You know, just like、mm-hmm. universally well loved because、um, there's just something inherently confident and、mm-hmm. self assured about yeah, and ab- yeah. about the way that they see themselves. And、mm-hmm. I'm just like I've never had that. I think yeah, as I get older, Helen, I'm I'm a, I'm definitely more comfortable in my in My being, I suppose, and my essence. But like,、um, I, I, I have never been. I think up up until I had like very strenuous therapy, I grew up and all I, my fundamental feeling was shame. I walked around with shame. I just 
shame just I carried shame everywhere with me and I think people could feel that and you know who wants to hang around someone who feels ashamed about themselves um but um uh where was I going with this I think um that's why when I think about my closest friends and I have a lot of friends like I'm lucky that I have a lot of friends all of them one one on one like mm-hmm. no I don't think I, in my life um it, they I, don't I, intersect with each no other. none of my friends yeah. intersect and they're all kind of independent one on one friends mm-hmm. from all different facets of my life and i'm only extremely deep with all of them i don't think i i hang out i don't hang out with anyone i i cannot talk about like the most serious issues with mm-hmm. i just don't have time for yeah. superficial yeah. stuff yeah. but um but um i think i love people who like or i gravitate towards similar people like people who yeah. don't have inherently that sense that they um deserve kind of like the natural just some people have this and i see it with like uh, my nieces and nephews i can tell the, the even even at the age of like some even at the age of 7 and 5 or whatever mm-hmm. their ages are like i can tell you can tell which kid has a natural sense of like i belong in this world and then another kid who's like carry some sort of like um i wouldn't say shame but kind of like he doesn't really fit into this world because he's so unusual and um i kind of i i kind of gravitate towards that other that person who doesn't feel like they fit in this world mm i guess it's an exploration of you know how you interact with the whole world and your own friendship status as well and it changes throughout your age as well i mean when i was younger i just followers i'm i'm pretty much like a sheep when i was younger in my uni years i feel like I would just go and make friends of whoever that was closest to me and then when you get older that you kind of discover that you understand that you do not have the capacity to please everyone as well like to to be liked by everyone it's just very tiring and now you know in my early 40s I don't have a lot of friends but all my friends are very close like you I would say that all my friends that we can talk about almost everything and you know they're even close closer than my own family members i think mm, mm. so i guess that's a good thing because that's what you need to evolve and also those friends do echo back you know when you're starting to discuss something like even social issues or a book or a, a film that we can actually talk about it and then give you different perspectives which is a really good thing you know i yeah. i want to learn from my friends as well yeah absolutely absolutely hi there if you're new to our show thanks for tuning in into our program and we hope you will stay with us for a very long time and if you are a regular listener we're forever grateful for your continuous support throughout this period of uncertainty It has really helped this podcast to gain a great exposure as our mission is to center the perspectives of people who look like us who are marginalized historically to the sideline of conversation. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast on Omni, Apple, Google or Spotify and leave a rating and review. And of course, as a small podcast program, we rely on listeners' support to continue this work. Please do check out our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation in order for us to continue to advocate the intersectionality in the podcast industry.
Okay, let's dive into our cultural consumption for this week. So, like you said, you went last week to Chatswood uh, Concourse for the Chinese New Year Asian comedy special. Highlights, lowlights. Spirit. I actually had it on my notes here, but I don't know where it's gone to. Oh, yes, it's here. I found it. Um, I actually had a good time. Uh, so we went with Yumiko, one of our acquaintances. Um, <clears throat> I know we know from the, our podcast, and she's written a book of emotional female. Read her books. She's brilliant. Um, so the comedy, all the comedians worked really hard to get on the position. Therefore, I shouldn't really criticize on the performance. Well, I'm not asking you to criticize. Am I saying who, who was your favorite? Um, I can't remember his name, which is I'm feeling really ashamed of. He's actually the first act of the night. Uh, the host was Diana Noon. Uh, she's a comedian, and all the comedians was well. It was really, really fun to watch. My daughter's idol Jenny Tan was there. Harry June, as usual, he's oh hello Harry June. Yeah, Harry's, he is um, he's brilliant. fucking brilliant. <laughs> um, there were one comedian who recycled the contents from the previous year. <laughs> Because I remember that joke very clearly. I'm not going to mention What was the joke? That. What was the joke? It's about yellow pussy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know yeah. exactly who you're talking about. Well, um, she's had like an amazing year, so. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But I was just thinking that, oh, okay, I heard this last year. Yeah, 12 months ago. <laughs> come on. Come on, girl. Give me something more. Just because you're on TV now. Come on. <laughs> um, I found it over, it's quite funny that, more female comedians are openly to talk about jokes on sex. Mm. Uh, I'm still on the position of not too sure about making fun of your own genital, which a lot of male comedian does. Ugh, yeah. um, so on the subjects of the sex jokes, so when, my, when we came home, my husband was asking me, oh, how was a comedy night? Because, you know, our daughter went with me. And I say, yeah, I, I expected, you know, sexual jokes, but I didn't expect it that many oh it wasn't a lot but it was not too explicit as well so i wasn't concerned and so i told him that yeah jokes about dicks and pussy you know the usual jokes about genital <laughs> my daughter turned around and said that what they were not talking about the cats <laughs> so she, oh my god because so like 80 percent of the joke she didn't get but she was yeah it was it was a nap, night out for her so she had fun you know going out at night eating out and having ice cream and things like that. So she turned around and said that, what, they were not talking about cats? I thought they were talking about Vietnamese New Year, about cats. Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. And well, that sounds um, Well, I had the privilege of attending a premiere um, play mm -hmm. um, at the Ensemble Theatre this Wednesday night. And the play is a play by Melanie Tate. It's called A Broadcast Coop. It's basically a Me Too movement. Um, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, Me Too story about a radio. So, you know, a bunch of women trying to take down this kind of Alan Jones type of mm -hmm. figure. Brilliant. Yeah. I loved it. Uh, it's one of my favourite. It's one of the best plays I've seen in years. Oh, okay. Um, it, it is just a lot of fun. There's a lot of snappy dialogue. Some criticism is that the main character is a bit flat and predictable and one-dimensional, but um, I didn't mind it, actually. I, I really got on board. What was funny was um, my friend Linda and I, we ended up sitting next to James Valentine. Oh, okay. Uh, that was such a fluke. Like uh -huh. I was like, hey, I talked to you on the radio last week. <laughs> <laughs> and then we saw we just started chatting. And then also across from him was uh, Richard, Richard Glover. 
another uh, famed literary, uh, sorry, yeah. media figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was very pleasant. Um, and uh, and reading a book uh, that I'd like to recommend this week is uh, one a very famous book that came out last year that a lot of people were talking about. It's called or this could be different. It's by Sarah Thankham Matthews. It is um, basically a story about um, a brown woman, mm-hmm. where immigrant Indian migrant parents who've gone back to India. Uh, who's she's now? She's twenty two years old. She's working at her first job in Milwaukee, and mm. she's queer. So it's a brilliant. It's a. It, I cannot state how wonderful her writing style is. Her voice is so kind of very very um off it's kind of it does it's like the way she structures her sentences is there's always a bit of an offness to it mm-hmm. and it's quite delightful to read to be honest i really enjoy it um there is one par one passage i wanted to read to you helen and yes, that um that really really captures uh sort of why i love this book um i love it because a lot of what she says and that I identify as also a child of immigrants myself. Mm. Um, her perspective is very much something that I share, but also um, the the sort of duty um, that she feels towards her parents. I feel like this paragraph really captures it. So here's the line. She says, I did not know how to explain the stubborn love for my parents that I staggered under, iridescent and gigantic and veined with a terrible grief Grief for the ways their lives have been compost for my own. Mm, Isn't that beautiful? I so love beautiful. that. I love that terrible grief, but also the compost. Like my my um, our parents' lives are compost for mm-hmm. my own. They become like oh. fertilizer. Yeah, exactly. Them. It's beautiful. On the subject of grief, yeah, I really urge you and our listeners to go and listen Code Switch, which is which is the American NPR podcast Code Switch, the latest episode on Lunar New Year. Okay. Oh my god, it's so brilliant. There's a part um, of their producer, one of their Asian producers, talking about grief as mm-hmm. a coming from an immigrant, as a like descendant of immigrant. As in, he was talking about that unless that you're an immigrant yourself our grief never goes it's just mm. transcendence into the next generation yeah and so beautiful he almost cry on the um podcast which i'm gonna oh. i don't want to cry now yeah <clears throat> yeah but Please. it was really beautiful it's such a beautiful episode okay switch yeah okay i can't okay. wait to make i can't wait to listen to that um how about on, you helen on cultural consumption this week so there is one TV series, a limited series on Netflix, and there's a Disney Plus movie I want to talk about this week. So firstly, um, the limited series on Netflix, um, it's a kit animation, which is, it's called Oni, the Thunder God's Tale. So I actually first thought it was a, originally in Japanese, because he had a Japanese title too, called Kamigami Yama no Onari. Um, it is a 3D stop motion hybrid animated fantasy created by Daitsuki Tsutsumi and based on the Onari's lullaby by Emi Tsutsumi and inspired by various uh, Japanese folklore. So if you watch the animation, for those who are familiar with a lot of Japanese folktales, you will recognize different sort of monsters and gods that are created in such an adorable image if you google up now and look for kappa kappa mm. k-a-p-p-a 
it's one of the characters in it and so cute so the series tells the story of onari onari um a, a little girl who sets on the path to become one of the folklore um heroes she was trying to protect her peaceful village from the mysterious oni it started the story off by you know creating this image of um someone's gonna attack our this monster's gonna attack our village and they believe that uh onari should have like a unique power but she's yet to be seen by her peers uh so this is the like a world of op obo gods and monsters of japanese folktale and i just felt like it's a, such a cute story where they've it's a self-discovery sort of story <clears throat> it's kind of like they, the i think the the creator for this series was trying to make those uh the japanese monsters into a very cute perspective mm -hmm. this uh kappa is like I don't even know how to describe it in English, but uh, in Chinese we have it as well. It's like this water monster that lives under the bridge in the river, mm -hmm. it's got like a ball patch on the top. It's got turtle shell. It's like half human, half turtle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but um, the creator of Oni made it into like such a cute, almost like Studio Ghibli sort of um, uh, character. Yeah, uh, so we watched that, and the other thing that we watched was the menu mm -hmm. um i don't know if you heard about it but i've seen posters everywhere since oh yeah months. yeah i wanted to see it when yeah. it came out in the cinemas because I, I was riveted really i was yeah. riveted by the uh trailer it looked very yeah. good and i love yeah. nicholas holt <laughs> about a boy i mean <laughs> i mean what that, that is the most dramatic yeah. transition a little 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 whatever his name was Marcus, right? His Marcus, Marcus. I think oh, Marcus like, yeah. About a Boy is one of my favorite movies and absolutely the most funniest book I've ever read. Um, one of my favorite movies ever. And then, like, now Nicholas Holt is this, like, hot, hot, tall man. He, same, he transition as, <clears throat> same transition as Dudley. Or was that, was that, that, that Dudley? Was it Dudley? Not Dudley. It was, there was a nerdy kind of uh, Harry Potter character who was like. On button. Longbottom, Neville, yeah. Neville, Neville, was like, Neville, yeah, yeah, yeah. He the transition with Neville is absolutely stunning. Like <laughs> this guy, Neville, the guy who plays Neville Longbottom now is like one of the hottest men alive. It's crazy. Yeah. How, how does that happen? Well, people just change, especially I guess you know, yeah. from that teenage kind of, not even teenage or prepubescent yeah. dorkiness into yeah, dorkiness. That's right. <laughs> well, actually, uh, Nicholas Hall plays a jerky character. In oh, this yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is a 2022 American black comedy horror film uh, starring, as you said, Nicholas Holt, uh, who plays Tyler. And the movie started with all this bunch of very wealthy, well-known people going to uh, this exclusive restaurant owned by and operated by the celebrity chef Julian Slowak, um, played by Ralph Fiance. Uh, located in this Ralph Fiennes, yep. Fiennes, yeah. Uh, on this private island. And the other guests that uh, attending the dinner were Lillian Balloon, the character who is a food critic, her editor, a wealthy couple, Richard and Anne, a washed up movie star, George Diaz and his personal assistant. And there's also three business partners, which I found a bit strange were played by an Asian, a black dude, and a kind of like a Latino person, which I 
don't ever think because these three characters portrayed in the movie as seen as like they're the top CFOs or the executives of a huge corporation, mm. which you stereotypically you would think will be three white men. Yeah. But they were played by all these ethnic people. They, 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 they're like the, this kind of bro, kind of giving out this kind of bro vibe. Like Silicon Valley tech guys? Yeah, yeah, sort of, yeah. I don't even know how, it's hard to explain this movie because it's pretty much a dark comedy with a very strong satirical intention to reflect on social obsession, the society's obsession of uh, wealth in relation to fine dining, the disparity between uh, the wealth and the poor and always the huge strong contrast of two polarized groups to be examined i feel like that the film tells a hard truth about human desires in wealth social capital and status which in all it's all about power and the power will eventually corrupt the rationality and the humanity in this society i don't want to tell the listeners too much of the film because I think you need to go in to watch the film without any anticipation and then you'll get the shock factor out of it. Oh, there's a twist at the end? No, no, no. It's probably 20 minutes in, then you'll get the <laughs> you'll get right. that shock factor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah well, I also I would like to watch it because um, I, I know that the uh, the Asian actress who was in mm-hmm. um, the what was that film um, by The Whale? She's I'd in also- The Whale's. On Cha. She's in, um, yeah, yeah, that's right. She was made famous by Alexander Payne's film. Uh, she's also in Downsizing. Downsizing, that's it. Yeah, I, I really that. liked Downsizing. Yeah. A downsizing lot of people hated too. it. I really yeah. liked it. Anyway, with Matt Damon. Yeah, so she's in this film. I know that. Is mm-hmm. she like some sort of sous chef? Um, she's like the, what's, I, can't, I don't know how to pronounce this, but she's like the, um, not the Usher, but she's like the. Concierge. Um, the, yeah, the concierge. <laughs> really? Oh, I thought she was in the kitchen. That's how lack of the knowledge we have for hospitality. But she's like the, I don't even know how to pronounce this French word, but she's like the oh, head I of all the waitress. Right, right. Yeah, she, so she leads right. the guests into the restaurant. She explains, mm. you know, how the night will be unfold and she mm-hmm. helps to kind of um, facilitate their everyone's needs mm. need to yeah get this one yeah so <clears throat> she plays that character which she, she does a really wonderful I mean, she's character. a fantastic she's actor yeah the only reason she's not more famous is because of her skin color and background unfortunately mm. hollywood's very white we no. all know that recently uh let's talk about that later um yeah i feel like this movie is very much adjacent to the trend that we've been seeing with high wealth ultra Sort of depictions of ultra wealth and um, kind of contexts that they often find themselves lubricating in uh, the White Lotus, Triangle of Sadness, and food adjacent places like the Bear, the Menu. Um, this is all kind of conglomerating in my it's a conglomeration in my mind in the sense that um, I have recently read a brilliant article. Um, in I believe the New York Times that talks about um, the closure of Noma, which is the you know most famous yes. fine dining restaurant in the world, often mm. called the best restaurant in the world. Um, and the reasons are that there were um, unethical and exploit unethical behaviors and exploitation that were exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So uh, this article basically concludes that a lot of the Michelin-star restaurants in the world are closing down because a lot of these um, places are run by kind of like uh, unpaid labour, by interns yeah, that don't get paid. Interns and apprenticeship. It's a very it's, toxic environment where is, yeah. apprentices go in and trying to kind of build up their own career, but they're, yeah, there's something being, that actually yeah. will depict in the movie The Menu about mm-hmm. the toxic kind of the theory and the idea about of apprenticeship in the hospitality industry yeah like the idea that you have to work your way up and yeah. in, the, in the meantime get abused mm-hmm. and taken advantage yeah. of like yeah. it's and it's really messed and up and a lot of them are unpaid because yeah. they think that they are there to in exchange of experience and prestige of being exactly worked exactly in, you know, noma or like the yeah. top restaurant of the world things like that yeah absolutely well that's great um let's take a break and when we come back we'll talk about the two artic- uh, items of news that we that have been uh thinking about a lot this week that have been ruling our minds we'll be right back okay so we're back um this week so This is a huge story um, that everyone's been talking about in Australia, at least in the arts community. Uh, And we want to kind of give you a background on it. And it's basically about um, uh, an editor at The Age, um, one of sort of the most reputable publication here in Australia. Um, She she has a background in writing. I, I believe she's written a book or so, a collection of essays perhaps, or short stories. Her name is Elizabeth Flux. She is she identifies as a Euro-Asian, mm-hmm. born in Hong Kong, I believe. Yes. Um, she's white passing. I just want to say that first. Um, I didn't actually know she was she had any kind Asian, of yeah. POC before I read this article. Basically, last Sunday she published a opinion piece in the Sunday The Age column, a column, where uh, its title was Should White Critics Be Allowed to Review This Play? The producers don't think so. Now it is a play. Um, basically, she talks in this um, in this opinion piece about um, a seven, play seven called methods. "The Seven Methods of Killing Kylie, Kylie Jenner," which you, if you are in Australia and you are in the arts world, and you are um, someone who's aware of happenings in the last twelve months, you would have heard this play. Everyone's obsessed with it. It's I unfortunately missed it when it was playing here in Sydney, um, but uh, it's a great play. Um, basically, about two black women who go on social media and criticize the lack of self-awareness in Kylie Jenner's privilege and the backlash about that. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Elizabeth Flux talks about how she, um, The Age had reviewers lined up to, uh, a reviewer lined up to review this show. Now, what you need to know with uh, the reviewers and uh, theater, how it works is basically um, reviewers get complimentary tickets, mm-hmm. usually two, uh, usually one or two, and um, they go and attend the show and then they, in, in exchange for the free ticket, they write about the play, so they give a review. Now, what happened in this case was that Elizabeth Flux says that um, the producers of the show, um, who are both white women who are don't, are don't identify as POC people, mm-hmm. they, ref- they said that they would not, quote unquote, accommodate a, a, a reviewer who was not a POC. They get 
Mm-hmm. And so basically that is the crux of the conflict that she has written a bit of a rant about. So she is, she's unhappy basically. So she was not happy that, um, that the producers didn't want to give a free ticket to a white reviewer. reviewer, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, so many things to talk about and unpack here. Yes. Helen, um, let's start with you. First thoughts. Did you want to um, mention anything in um, Elizabeth Flux's opinion piece okay. that I skipped before we actually go into the details of what we thought about it. Okay. So firstly, we need to think about the electronic version of her piece. It was basically only a link and her uh, opinion article was yep. on the internet. And then secondly, on top of that, the hard copy of the newspaper, I think it kind of um, escalated to another level because yes. it was incorporated in with a caricature of uh two black woman who is uh which was depicting the play mm-hmm. and uh um or and, and the audience setting and with a seat at the back of the seat says uh, the poc critics so it was like kind of like making fun out of what the producers want mm-hmm. so the 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 cartoon actually kind of elevated onto another level of people yeah. saying that oh this is really inappropriate yeah and asking uh, Flux, Elizabeth Flux, to come out and explain. And I don't think she has made any comment. I don't. I don't even. I think she has actually. Oh, she's. She, okay. Yeah, she's commented on Twitter. She said that she had no idea. Um, and and I know this because I write for the Herald and the Age. We mm-hmm. as writers, we have no say in what the accompanying image goes with our article. And sometimes the titles as well. I think. Yeah. No, we have no say with the titles. Yeah. 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 So it comes down to that the. You know the editors, whoever who's had the power to decide what goes on to be published. Yeah, um, there are a couple of things that she said on her article that I felt was like, hmm, okay, so you're speaking from a very privileged position. For example, she said that feeling seen and represented by work is separated to the specialist skill set of being able to di- dissect and discuss the same piece, same piece of art. So. She doesn't think that you know your identity is relevant to your skills. I partially agree with her, but I also don't. I don't disagree. I, I don't agree with her on the same point in the sense that your identity could tell you, you know, a lot of things that does not come by because of what you learn and a lot of knowledge and experience does not come by purely from what you do as your work as well, because you can evaluate a lot of things from other perspectives outside of your skill sets. Okay, secondly, um, the quote that both Jess and I had a bit of laugh as well was, um, she said that group critics, irrespective of their lived experience, put their biases to one side and identify what does and doesn't work in a piece of art. So, what yeah, I just I, I want to was... ask her what constitute a good review like who sets a standard of good review and also bias how can you have someone who oh. without a bias ask yeah. a baby to <laughs> to oh do the gosh, review yeah. then ask a newborn to do a review they will definitely have no bias I can't yeah. say I don't have a bias I'll definitely have bias because of my live experience um I think the white majority uses their white people's lived experience to review a good uh, review a work and consider that is a good review. Like I said before, that really, what is the standard of a good review? How can you say something is a good specifically of a review 
when no one else has seen the play or the piece of work yet. Everyone mm. have a very different perspective. It's very subjective of what you think. I know. All, all you have to see is like the recent reviews of Bab- Babylon. Some people mm. fucking loved it. Some people fucking hated it. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think that it's oh, yeah. Like I said, I, I hated the way that she uses saying that oh we should put our biases away. You know. As that if was just white people, that was just laughable. As if white reviewers do not have bias. Yeah, you know exactly. That's what she was saying, basically. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah, I go gone. Well, I just want to say, um, it's a very, it's a very laughable line, and I do want to say, um, whenever something like this happens, I always turn to the more work <laughs> people I know and the more critically, mm-hmm. um, sort of thinking writers writer friends that i know who are kind of like who understand critical race theory and are so much smarter than me so when i reached out to them over the course of the last few days about mm-hmm. what they thought about this whole column they basically and i wanted to engage with them i wanted them to like give me points and details about what was like what if they you know if they agreed with what flux was saying or if they disagreed mm-hmm. um and um all of them have basically written back saying this is a silly piece. Mm. Like they just laughed it off. They were like, I'm not even going to engage with it. It's not worth my time. Yeah, it's not worth your time. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I'll say that first. But secondly, I want to say um, the whole, the line about putting biases at the door is basically what a, usually what a white person would say, I feel. Because mm. usually like um, the white straight figurehead, especially when it comes to right, yeah. arts criticism, often is like oh um i am the adjudicator mm. i'm the overbearer the overseer historically of what constitute as good what constitute as bad you know i'm the middle middle of the line rational i i don't have any gripes i don't have any biases you know um those people i i feel like i just i cannot i cannot do that so i'm surprised that someone who ident- identifies as a poc would actually even say that Mm. Um, and also like, um, I read critics who often, like, I actually read critics because of their biases. So for instance, what I mean is like, um, my favorite critics are people like Gia Tolentino, Wesley Morris, Hilton Ailes, like, um, people like, and those three people I've named are POC people. Two of them are black gay men. Um, and I read, um, people like them because they actually have a wider lens than me, Mm -hmm. but I'm quite like, besides my, um, my like ethnic background i'm very very white like um i'm able-bodied i'm straight i'm fucking boring you know like i see the (laughs) world through the lens of what i guess like the people who hold much of the power in this world see like i'm i'm more aligned to their lens than say like a black disabled trans you know person um gay you know um i i'm like very my my lens is not as broad as say like someone like Wesley Morris and I read Wesley Morris because he because of his biases because Mm -hmm. he's so good at picking things up that Mm -hmm. I wouldn't you know so Mm -hmm. like I I guess like that that would be my response like um now that's almost been a week since the piece was published um and kind of the the storm has now died down and I'm thinking about this kind of idea that she's espoused with more kind of like um distance very div- i think very divisive kind of sort of opinion to point fingers at <clears throat> poc productions and poc's work of art 
because the the initial intention of the producers was that they had this kind of agreement with all the shows, all the production across Australia, and the intention was to get POC reviewers to come and see their shows, to get more POC writers to be participated, you know, to be do, doing this kind of thing, and then the age and SMH, it reflects. You know the lack of diversity in those publications, or even zero diversities. They couldn't even send someone who's POC background. And also, I also think that you know SMH knows the editor knows this is gonna flare up. It's a clickbait. This woman under the bus, even though she's white passing, she's you know still part Asian. It's kind of like oh, you can't really argue because it's written by a written by a woman that's partly Asian.、Um, so, like I said, the article reflects a zero diversity in those major news publications, and also、um, it's just the power of having a voice. You know, Sydney Morning Herald and the Age, and also Elizabeth Flux have millions of readers that compare to the production.、Um, consider who has more exposure and influence. Again, it's all about power dynamics. I think it's controlled by the giant. Corrupt the media companies to influence the the sort of implications of how ones could, you know, give judgment on this kind of issue. You know, this incident, this this opinion, kind of gave remind me of two specific reviews、um, mm-hmm. I read last year.、Mm-hmm. One review is by some inner city website. I think it's called City Hub、uh, on a theater production called Chim Chimerica. I got to know about this work after a tip from like an acquaintance in the theater industry. So the writer for that piece of review is clearly white because she focuses all on the white actors. When one of the greatest performance in that、uh, production is clearly an Asian actor,、mm-hmm. um, and there was one photo where they didn't label the female, the Asian female actor. Like under the photo, you know, usually yeah, right, yeah, a, yeah, a caption, yeah, a caption of the names of the actor. They only labeled the white actor、mm. when the female actress was in the photo as well. They didn't, you know, credit her at all. Mm, mm. Yeah, and in the review, there's actually、um, two. I'll say about eighty percent were all all talking about the white actors, their performance. You know the style, how good、mm-hmm. they are.、Mm-hmm. Well, clearly, this is a story about China, America, and it's heavily based in in China. They only had one sentence about the one、uh, male Asian actor. That's it. Wow. Yeah, and another review that was picked up by you、um, about the Boxing Day <laughs> barbecue.、Mm-hmm. I believe、mm-hmm. that they had the the right the reviewer got the names of the characters mixed yeah. up. Yeah. 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 But on both incidents, I believe that I emailed them and said,、yeah. ask them about it. Yeah. Obviously, I never get back from them, and they never change or right, amend. Right. You know, those they don't think it's their own mistake. They think it's oh, it's、yeah. published. It's fine. I don't care. No one's gonna read it, or no one's gonna consider it's a shitty review or thing、mm. like that.、Mm. So、this is the product of having reviewers that don't give a shit for of people of color. Or don't、mm. really take into account of people who actually work hard、mm. to create a production, and they were, and you have a writer saying that yeah, we don't have a bias, you know, we、yeah. don't have bias. It's really, you know, it's another 
stab into the heart saying that, oh, it's your, it's people of color's fault that, you know what I mean? It's like a very defensive, very um, kind of trying to deflect the faults onto the other people. Yeah. So this piece, um, thanks to um, the diversity media uh, Facebook page is where I actually first encountered mm. it. Um, and uh, and it blew up a lot of comments. Most people on this page, you know, obviously 100% of them are POC. They basically said that um, that uh, Flux and um, Flux in her piece had misinterpreted the purpose of mm-hmm. what the producers had intended, which was to basically um, try and uh, try and put more POC critics in the field. Um, mm. I'd say if you were, I'm not sure because I, I am a critic myself at the age and SMH. So in the books department, I, uh, but, um, so I, I actually, you'd think I would be aware, but because uh, I'm, I, I only do a couple, you know, um, a week, uh, sorry, uh, a month. And I'm not uh, I'm not on board with the main masthead people. I'm not sure what the numbers are, but I I think I can confidently say that most critics in Australia are white. Yeah, definitely. and I um and I also have to say that I um basically got the job um my myself and Declan Fry got the job because two white reviewers stepped down from their role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not I'm not I'm not like ashamed of that. I, I have to like I, to I'm like very <laughs> well like um I'm not gonna hide the fact I'm not gonna hide the fact that I got this job because like um I won the you know like I was selected when the job postings were you know advertised two three years ago um it was because uh there was an uproar in the selection there at the time of of the appointments there were five young so-called emerging um, Mm -hmm. critics that were selected and um, there was an uproar and then two of these critics who were selected stepped down and then they opened up the pool of candidates again and then Declan Fry and I interviewed again and we got the jobs. So I have my job here today because two white people said, gave me the space. So I'm not so sure how to feel about that. Like some people might say, oh, do you feel bad that, you know, you're kind of like a token hire? I'm like, no. Like, not at all. Like, uh, I am not going to apologize for how I got to where I am. Yeah, obviously not. I mean, those two white men can, or white, those two white critics can find jobs. There's a white woman and a white man. Yeah. yeah, those two white people can find jobs pretty much easily anywhere else if they want to, you know, compared to a POC critics. And <clears throat> in conclusion, what I think is that the the production has given like a response to that piece. Oh, of- yeah. Can you tell me what they've said? Um, no, they, they, uh, it's very long. I, I can send it to oh, you. Okay. But basically, that the producers or the um, production PR team just responded with the actual intentions. You know, it's they're not being tried to be diversive between groups. They're, they're not trying to stir up a conflict. They're trying to get more POC, like what we just talked about last 20 minutes, get more POC to be involved in this industry. And for me, it feels like, oh, my God, it's so exhausting because at the end of the day, woman of color is taking out our energy to educate white people again for those who doesn't understand or who, mm. those who chooses not to understand and who chooses to hold on, on there to their powers to feel like, oh, we're being oppressed because we have mm. to give up a seat for a POC critic. You know, I mean, 
everyone can. If you want to, it's just like if you were not given to that opportunity. Think about a lot of POC in the art industry who were denied it or rejected from a huge, a lot of opportunities in the past, in in historically.、Mm. You know, just because one production has not has kind of preferred POC critics than the white critic, and then you're kind of having your hands up in the air and crying about it. It's just you know, it, it's just really nonsense to me. Yeah, mm, mm. it's really tiring. Yeah, it's really tiring that you know at the end of the day, again, women of color need to explain, taking out our efforts and energy to educate. Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> moving on to another. Piece of news. Well, one more thing that yeah,、oh, okay. uh, the second piece, the second piece of news that um has pissed me off this week and also Helen. <laughs> uh, but uh, so uh from from you know Australia to another part of the world. Yes. Um, Marie Kondo, you know the woman who like wants us to chuck everything away. Obviously, we all know her. She was like a massive thing a few years ago. Uh, what was her stance again, Helen? Um, Only joy, keep things that sparkled, something, spark, yeah, spark, spark of joy or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, this week she has a.、Uh, she has told the Washington Post that she has.、Uh, she's no longer as、um, <laughs> on top of her cleanliness. She no longer adheres to the philosophy that she so capitalistically and, and passionately engendered in everyone. Mm. Uh, a few years ago, and、uh, she's basically saying now that she's had her third child, she doesn't care about a messy house.、Mm. To which I was like, "Where the fuck is your husband?" <laughs> yeah. Oh,、uh, firstly, I think I'm not quite sure if everyone's actually pronouncing the Western world. I'm not quite sure if Western media is pronouncing her name correctly, or if she ever asked to. What's like, her what, name? How do you say her what, name? I, I think it's Marie. There's a, oh, the, yeah, Marie. It should be Marie. Oh, everyone just yeah. calls her Marie. Marie, Marie yeah. The, yeah. The, the Western world just calls her Marie. right. Interesting. But I think the Japanese name is Mar Marie, which is such a beautiful name, by the way.、Mm、hmm. Marie.、Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay.、Mm -hmm. Yep. Oh yeah. So apart from pissing you off, yeah,、like、questioning where the husband is,、mm -hmm. what else do you think? Well, like when I saw this, um. <laughs> When I saw this, I was just like,、um, "This is akin to Greta, Greta Thunberg saying, 'Actually, I'm a climate denier now.' <laughs> like, okay, really, not not that obviously not that strong, but it's like she's given up on the thing that's made her famous, or at least like the、mm -hmm. values she was initially capitalizing on. So I was like, 'Oh,' and like I, I, there are pe people, there are women in the world who are like, 'Oh, yay! I feel so like relieved that.'" Um, someone like Marie Kondo is making me feel like, oh, it's okay that I'm messy. I'm like, what the fuck? She's like, you don't have to have a validation. <laughs>、uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, like, what, what? As if any woman sees Marie Kondo as like someone to look, to look to like as, as someone to be admiring of. Like, what? Who wants to like?、Uh, you know, like she, she, she has、um, the values of of nineteen fifties woman. You know, keep your house clean. Like, how is that a win for jet for like feminism? You know, it's so funny. How is that、yeah. interesting? Jesus Christ! Sorry, I'm getting really worked up. I really hope that she. It, it just shows that. Ah,、uh, like I don't want to. I don't want to criticize her in any negative way, but it just shows that, you know, woman, woman in that kind of position. Still don't have 
a partner, a male partner, like her husband, yeah, doing or sharing the work in the household in the family. Uh, it's so I'm absolutely yeah, confounded that nobody curious. responded that way. Yeah, I also curious is why. What's the intention of having that kind of media piece? Like, what kind of what intention? I know. Do you have a new book coming now, or yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think she's got I, a new show, a new book, or something. But like, there must um, be. It must. I be was like, covered. yeah, I was like, how how how, you how so, is that relevant? <laughs> how is that? How are you so blind to the fact that, like, basically, her announcement that oh, I've got a third child. Um, my house is now messy. Boo hoo! It's like um. How, how, like, how could you not see that you're basically saying my I am the only person who cleans up in the house? Mm. Like, you know, how how is anyone? How are you so blind to the fact that with your admission of oh oh my house is now messy, I have a third child, you're basically outing your you're basically proudly proudly outing your husband as someone <laughs> who does zero housework. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the fuck house? Something <laughs> you're like actually saying, saying proudly to everyone. I'm thinking it makes the, no I'm, sense to me. Okay. I'm thinking that in the very, I have to think of this situation of this piece of news in two different perspectives. One is like the Western thinking, like what you just said about where's your husband, like how is this something relevant to be talked about, but. On the perspective of from an Asian Eastern, not so much of a philosophy, but the lifestyle is that trying to kind of give in a relief sense of feeling for all the Asian women out there saying that uh, it's okay, like it's giving like permitting women to feel okay, it's be, to be okay to be messy after having your third child or something. But also, it's like it's so infantilizing. Like, how dare you think that I think that I need you to validate what? Oh I'm, yeah, of course, you know? yeah, yeah. But I think it's all like this news, the sort of a media storm of trying to prepare her for her next, I don't know, production of TV shows or book, whatever that's coming out. Yeah, from her team, I think. From the comments that I've read, a lot of women are saying that, "Oh, yeah, of course, you know, I don't. I, after having third child, I just gave up. I don't care anymore." Or people are saying that, "Oh, even if it's uh, Maria Kondo, she is. After all, she's a human." Yeah, mm-hmm. but but I'm like you. I, my first immediate response was like, "Okay, so where the fuck is the husband?" <laughs> <laughs> just so just the fact that yeah yeah <laughs> just just the fact that um she and also what is wrong with messy it's almost as if there's no messiness it's very yeah yeah oh my, my house is messy all the time oh my god it's not by the way it's not <laughs> but but yeah i just like how how is this like it's not really helping i just i don't understand how she how anyone could be so blind to her admission, her admission, A D M I S S O N admission is like a complete omission, O M I S O N, like of the the. It's like a completely admitting that I am the typical housewife who like is in charge of keeping I, the house clean. You know, yeah, I do also wonder that she is kind of telling herself that this is okay. You know, there's nothing wrong with being messy. I guess there's a process. Um, for a lot of women that needs to to go through telling herself saying that it's fine to be messy 
because mm. I know that will probably never happen with our mom. And there are women out there who are similar to our mother that needs to keep everything neat and tidy all the time. And it's just at the point where she realized that, oh, okay, I can't cope it with anymore. I have to accept the messiness with all the mm. kids around. That's, mm. that's, that's my assumption. Yeah. What do you think? I think you've said yourself that you like a, a clean house because yeah, it helps. helps. House. Yeah, because you said it helps with your psychology. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. But there, there are places in my house that's just dirty as fuck. I never clean. Well, I, can't, I can't think of that. Every time I go to your house, it's like, <laughs> it's like fucking immaculate. <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, this whole house, that this whole idea that the woman needs to, that a house needs to be clean, mm. right? Or tidy. Um, tidy. And mm. that it's the, the sort of um, the duty of the woman to Well, it's still very grinder in a lot of families, unfortunately. Yeah, it's still being grinder in a lot of families that, you know, it's an expectation for the, for the female family members or the wife or the mother. Mm. to keep the house tidy because they are seen as uh, a member of the society that is expected to do that. Yeah, there are a lot of, like, we can't deny that. Like what we said in the, our previous episodes, there are still, bright, you know, child brides in the world. There's still a lot of people who hold deeply conservative ideas that women are the ones that's supposed to um, keep the house tidy. Yeah. But, like, it's making me think about this idea of, like, um, like you said, messiness and tidiness mm-hmm. and, like, where that, where that expectation came from, that, that a house needs to be uh, absent, absent of messiness. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of um, this beautiful line in uh, Deborah Levy's book, which I have in my hand right now, and I'm trying to find it. The hot milk? Um, no, it's not hot milk. It's uh, the cost of living. Oh yes, which is oh, I just I'm a, I'm obsessed with Deborah Levy. Levy, Levy. Um, I believe it might be this book, or it might be. I'm pretty sure it's this book. Mm-hmm. What was it like? What's a brief summary? What's the? Can you remember? If you can't remember the whole quotation, uh, I'm gonna find it right now, and I will be okay. quick. I promise. <laughs> is it annoying? Maybe it's not in here. <laughs> Sorry. It's alright. I usually like underline all the best lines but somehow i have decided not to do that in this book but basically um the line that i'm looking for is uh, a line where she says like Mm -hmm. the woman the job of the woman is to keep um, everyone in her house um happy Mm. and that includes kind of keeping things tidy i guess you know Mm. and that it's a very very hard role and it's the most under acknowledged role Yes. I'll try and find it and um, it might be in her other, it might be in things I don't want to know, but I swear I thought it was in the cost of living. But I believe it's because it was never given a money value. Yeah, exactly. It's not. That kind of, you know. Monetized, exactly. Never monetized and it was socially expected that um, the female needs to do those things. We're trying to break that kind of social expectation. It's all- I will, yeah. I will try. I will locate this. I will locate this um, quote. Some. Mm. I'm sure it'll happen. Oh, here it is. Here it is. I found it. Fantastic. So it is. Here it is. It's. She says, 
the family house, the comfort and happiness, the family house is where the comfort and happiness of men and children have been the priority is, I'll, 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 write, I'll read the entire line. Yeah, 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 yeah. To strip the wallpaper off the fairy tale of the family house in which the comfort and happiness of men and children have been the priority is to find behind it an unthanked, unloved, neglected, exhausted woman. It requires skill, and this is the line I should have, I, I was trying to find. Mm-hmm. It requires skill, time, dedication, and empathy to create a home that everyone enjoys and that functions well. Mm-hmm. Above all, it is an act of immense generosity to be the architect of everyone else's well-being. Mm-hmm. This is still, this task is still mostly perceived as women's work. Mm-hmm. That is the line I was trying to look for. And unpaid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that 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 that's that 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 line where she says the architect of everyone's well as else's well being. Mm. I think that is what really pisses me off about Marie Kondo's whole like admission that oh I, I'm I'm haha silly old me I have a third child so I get to be messy or like where the fuck is your husband? Mm-hmm. But from the tone of it, it also sounds like she's apologizing. Yeah, and I hate that. Like, I've I'm, all, oh, I'm sorry way, that my yeah, house I'm is exactly not clean messy. Enough. I have a third yeah. child. Um, number one, you need to apologize. It's like fuck it, where's the kid? Sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Guys. A lot of a lot of people I love have three children, but also like who the fuck has three children these days? Anyway, besides that point, besides my little gripe with um, overpopulation and climate change, um, uh, I've always had a little gripe with um, with Marine Connor. Can I just say just because yeah, I, I just know. from the beginning, I, you, you yeah, just from the beginning, like because like I, well, because like she's the kind of like if you she I think a few years ago she was the first Asian woman to have really penetrated Western culture in a way that in a way that no Asian woman has had. Yeah, has the done. influence. Like kind yeah. of the influence that she's had and the yeah. penetration that she's she's mm-hmm. made in Western media. Which is a good thing. In her culture. Yeah. Like as in culturally. Mm-hmm. Like she's a cultural phenomenon. Like like if we think about if you go out on the street, say Helen, if you now go on the street and interview twenty white people and say, okay, well, who's the first Asian celebrity or person in your head that you think of? Um, I actually don't know who they would say. Mm-hmm. I, I actually don't. I can't think of. Bruce Lee, <laughs> Jackie Chan. Oh, really? Oh, God. No, 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 what about, what about like, people wise. in their 20s, I mean? You know, who oh, would they the say? 20s, you know? Well, people in their 20s do know Bruce Lee, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. okay. I don't, I don't know about that. But anyway, um, I just feel like she had so much cultural cachet in the West and the reason why I had a gripe with her is because um, of what she stood for. Yeah, the lifestyle. Which is like, which is like keeping her. a clean yeah. house and being all quiet <laughs> and feminine. And, like, she basically, I felt like she basically um, reinvented reinforced. Yeah. She basically reinforced and reemphasized the idea of what the, uh, the ideal Asian woman looks like mm-hmm. or, like, the typical Asian woman looks like, you know. And I just, like, I was like, this is, like, not. You hate it. My mo- this is this is not making my life any easier because mm-hmm. anytime anyone looks at me now, or any time any any white person interacts <laughs> with me for the first time, they're gonna they're, they're first thing, no, they're first, they're just gonna put me adjacent to Marie Kondo. You know, they're gonna think that. Oh, do you know how to do tidy now? Can you come and go? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you know how to fold sheets properly? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. So anyway, so that's my that's you know the reason why I get so worked up anytime we talk about this woman. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's both positive and negative. I mean, it's a good thing that she penetrated, you know, the Western um, lifestyle sort of culture. But he also kind of, kind of like what I was going to say was that <clears throat> she reinvented the same stereotypical image of an Asian woman who is obedient, docile, and quiet yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. nothing wrong we're not attacking her image at all but it's just that the the media and the way that her pr have packaged her work exactly to a, a certain image that makes that make white majority assuming that asian woman specifically should look like that yeah, yeah exactly yeah okay <laughs> that's it that's it from us I think that's, yeah, I can't ra rant anymore. I've had a very ranty <laughs> very week. Okay, so that's the end of our episode. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Google, and Apple and give us a five-star rating. If you'd like to support us what we do here at Asian Bitches Down Under, head to our Buy Me Coffee page and make a donation for us to continue the intersectionality in the podcast industry. So that's it for us this week, and we'll chat to you next time. Guys, we'll talk to you. Yeah, have a good one. Bye. Stay angry. <laughs>